Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Professor Avril Mansfield needs no introduction. She's recently written an autobiography about her career. She was the first ever female professor of surgery in this country. She's a remarkable woman with a remarkable story. Perhaps a really interesting thing about her is that her dad was a welder. And what I'd like to start with is just to ask you to give me a potted history of your career so far. Starting with my early years? Yes. What what made you want to do medicine in the first place? Well, I was a girl in Blackpool from a working class family, um, living in a council house, where there were really no books. So a lot of my early influences came from the local library and I can't speak too highly of those influences from the local library where the librarian was prepared to recognise the sort of things I enjoyed reading and direct me to new things. And they included medicine and in particular surgery. And I became at the age of eight fascinated by the, the stories of surgical exploits, people doing things for the first time without any knowledge that these things could work, even though people could survive having their chest opened or whatever it happened to be. So I determined at that point that that was what I wanted to be, was not just to be a doctor, but to be a surgeon. Gosh. So that's where it all started. So did you then set out to achieve that? From then on, I was single-minded about it. That's what I wanted to be. Um... My parents were very cautious, not surprisingly, working class parents. My father was a welder and the idea that a child of his could become a doctor was a step too far. And particularly my mother thought it was way above my station really to even suggest that. In fact, on one occasion I won a prize at school and it got into the local paper, Avril wants to nurse. Now, you know, I have no problems with nursing. That's a wonderful career, but I wanted to be a doctor and I was really cross about that. (laughs) So so was any of that to do with you being a girl? It might have been, but that was not made evident to me. My father and mother never really paid any kind of notice of the fact that I happened to be female. It, you know, it was, it, was, it was, I could do whatever I wanted to do, really, except not to aim too high. Right, and did you have siblings? No, I was one alone. Okay, so... I nearly you... killed my mother when I was born, so she... <laughs> she, so she never again. Never again, yes, yes, indeed. So no, no medical relatives of any kind, no experience really of medicine, never. My first visit to a hospital was to go and visit my, my best friend at school's parents who were in hospital and it, it was completely new for me. I almost fainted and I thought, this will be the end of my career if I faint. <laughs> <laughs> so then, I mean, getting into medical school is quite challenging, particularly from that kind of background. Uh, how did that go? Well, it was... I only applied to two medical schools. I've often looked back and thought that was a bit limited. But I was living in Blackpool. I applied to 
Liverpool and Manchester because I thought if you went any further you fell off. I mean it was really the edge of my horizon. It was, they were a long way away in my view and both of them offered me a place which was quite surprising so I had a choice um, and I had been to both of them just for the interview. I hadn't been for any other reason. They didn't have open days then um, and I took a fancy to Liverpool and it was such a good choice. Lovely place. It's A, a lovely place and B, has not only a good medical school, but also lots of music, which was my other of big course. interest. Lovely, lovely. So the combination was wonderful. And uh, it's very much a university and a city combined, it, which is such a lovely thing. It's, uh, it's tremendously important, I think, to be part of the city if you're in the university. Yeah, no, I can, I can, imagine, I can imagine that. I, I have great fondness for Liverpool. It's where we put our CP North. Um, the spa yes, indeed. Has indeed, I've been there. The, the, the spa, the medical community yes. in Liverpool yes. is is, is yes. very nice. Yes, it? yes. So you get to Liverpool. How did yes. you get on? Dif with great difficulty, um, um, to my astonishment, because you know I'd never been away from home before. I didn't have brothers. I'd never seen a naked body, and there I am confronted. The first thing I, I I go into second year because I've got the qualifications to skip the first year. So it's anatomy day one. And this vast hall full of dead bodies that are informal in, uh, revealing all, which I had never seen before. Um, and lo and behold, of course, they give me the nether regions for my first bit of dissection. I mean, can you imagine that today? Probably did it on purpose. I'm sure they did. I'm <laughs> sure they did. Um, and I really struggled. And of course, the one thing above everything else I'd been looking forward to was human anatomy. I was a good dissector of the frog at school. And, you know, the idea that I've got to dissect a human body was, was exciting, but it really overwhelmed me. And I just backed off and, and didn't do terribly well at all. In fact, I failed the first important exam because I was just overwhelmed by it. And I took refuge in music. There's no doubt about that. I, I was good at the music. I was better at the music than I was at, at the anatomy, surprisingly. Um, and so I, I did that. But I, of course, I, when I'd failed the exam, I realised this could be the end of my career and I knuckled down and passed it, of course. Never failed anything after that, but it was a big shock. Gosh, yes, I, and something that comes to everybody at some stage, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. And yeah. so how did you get on after that? You presumably got it the next time. I got it the next time and, and then, of course, it was straight into clinical medicine, which was what I wanted and I loved it. I just... I just adored the rest of my course um, and then became when I graduated I then became a house officer in Liverpool and that probably was one of the happiest years of my life it's kind of crazy looking back because we worked all the hours God sent we really did I can remember saying to my boss is there any time off in this job which was a bit of a, a risque thing to say to your boss <laughs> And he said, and I suppose you could go into Liverpool on a Wednesday evening, provided you're back in time to do the night round. <laughs> I remember those words. And that basically was it. For the next year, you were almost a prisoner in the hospital. But the great thing is, you were with a group of like-minded people you lived in. You had that support structure, the firm structure that we now seem to have lost. Um, and it was tremendously supportive, uh, and I absolutely loved it. I was learning on the job. I, I had an Australian registrar, 
with whom I confided about my ambition to become a surgeon. So he then took me step by step through increasing severity of surgery to the, to the point when I was doing appendicectomies as a house officer. Gosh. Imagine that today, Gosh. how wonderful that was. I did about 20 as a house officer. Wow. Um, and then was prepared to say to me, you can do it, you'll be fine. You can, you can go for this career, it, it will be okay. Which is so valuable. I can't tell you how valuable that was to have somebody who would actually assess you, not just your skills, but your resilience. I guess that was a big part of it. You, you know, the fact that you might have been up all night and yet you were still capable of going and assisting with an aorta or something. It, 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 that was what he was looking at. That was just the skills. So quite inspirational, Dan. Yeah. Is he still around? No, he's not. He's dead. And the, 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 his boss, there were, there were three of them. There was the professor and then there were two other consultants. But the junior of those three, who I thought had been there forever, but of course was not terribly old, and he was just learning vascular surgery. He was, it was all brand new. Um, and so he was my inspiration, really, the consultant, Edgar Parry, who was a Welshman and just a, a wonderful person to work with was a good example of how to behave as a surgeon. I mean, never saw him lose his temper or get angry. The worst I ever heard him say in theatre was damn, and that with a Welsh accent. I mean, he really could put a Welsh accent into the word damn. I mean, that was absolutely the worst I ever heard. And I always had that belief that he would get out of any difficulties that, we got it, that he got into in a, in a complex bit of surgery. I had that confidence. And he also had this wonderful attitude that his job, this was much more evident when later when I became a registrar, but that his job was to make me better than him. Not to just bring me up to that standard, but to actually encourage me to go one step further. So did you stay in the same hospital for your registrar jobs? And back to it, it's interesting because I did a year, six months of house surgeon, then six months house physician, then I did obstetrics and gynaecology because many people said that would be a better career for a woman. Okay. You know how it was. Yes, um, I do. And so I did it and did not like it and had no desire to become an obstetrician and gynaecologist, none at all. And so then went back to being a senior house officer in surgery in a different hospital, then later went off to the States for two years, then I came back and became a registrar in the hospital where I had to be the house officer with the same boss. Okay, and stayed there? Oh. In two years there, uh -huh. um, as you did in those. We moved a lot, of course. Yes. And then having done my two years as a registrar and got my fellowship, I then became a senior registrar. And that was the, the most comfortable time in a way because I was lecturer at that stage. I'd taken a university appointment largely because I wanted to become a vascular specialist. I wanted to be a general surgeon with a special interest in vascular surgery because it was new, it was the up-and-coming thing, and I loved it. Um, so I took this academic post um, and, and really thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and it allowed me to develop those new skills that I, I needed to do. And did you do teaching along the way then? If yeah, you teaching. Were academic? Yeah, I'd had to run, run the exams. I, I, I started research when I was a registrar. That's kind of interesting because my 
mother almost died when I was little of a pulmonary embolus after the surgery that she required as a result of my birth. And it was in the family folklore how dangerous this pulmonary embolus was. And so my first venture into research was on, on deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. Okay. Yeah. My Hunterian professorship at the Royal College of Surgeons was on management of the source of pulmonary embolism. So that was my big, and I set up a laboratory as a registrar, funded by me. I mean, there wasn't any obvious source of funding then, just to get started. And I was looking at fibrinolysis in surgical patients. That's, that's how I began research, really. And I continued research all the way through my life, as Hon as did. Um, so that, that, that was the start of it all. Uh, incredible, an incredible story. So, so we're up at senior registrar level. What about getting, did you become a, a you continued on the academic track? No, I did not. I did not want to be, be a professor. Absolutely did not want to be a professor. The only reason I wanted the academic job was to A, allow me to continue with the research and B, to allow me to be flexible in what I was concentrating on in my surgical training. There wasn't a training post in vascular surgery but there were two surgeons in Liverpool who were doing vascular surgery. So this was a way of my manipulating my life so I could go and learn from those surgeons. Right, by, by, by having a post that it was didn't really exist or didn't exist before by making yes. your own posts. Yes. yes, basically making your own, your own training. Yeah. Yeah. You can. Yeah. We used to be able to do that. We could we? do it, we can't anymore. We can't yeah. do it anymore, yeah. which is yeah. a good thing and maybe not such a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so, what happened next? Well, the next thing that happened, of course, is that suddenly in one year, 1972, it just so happens, everything seemed to happen at once. I got a Hunterian professorship, I got the Moynihan Fellowship of the, of the Association of Surgeons, which took me off to the States for 10 weeks. Everything happened at once, and then I applied for a consultant job, and amazingly, I got it. Um, it was a second application. The first one I did not get, and I was shattered by that, but was perfectly content not to be coming to London, which is where the first application was for. And my second application was for the teaching hospital in Liverpool, and I, I got that job, and I was so excited to get that. It was wonderful, wonderful. So I was appointed NHS consultant to two of the three teaching hospitals. So my time was split between the two, both of them, of course, thought they owned me full-time, as happens when you split your job. And I was doing general surgery, but introducing to both of those hospitals vascular surgery for the first time. Things like aneurysms and bypasses and carotids. And, uh, and, and it was new, and that meant engaging with the nursing staff, with the theatre staff, and particularly, of course, with the anaesthetists who needed to to get used to this new branch of surgery, mm. which uh, they all enjoyed, uh, as, as did I, but it, it developed from then on. And so were you there for a while then as a consultant? I was a consultant for 10 years and then um, met Jack and he was in London uh, and I was in Liverpool. We both had good consultant surgical jobs. Um, neither of us wished to move. <laughs> But in the end, I moved to London, and uh, and it was a fantastic move for me, of course. I didn't want to quit Liverpool, 
But at the same time, I can see looking back on it that it was it was a, an extremely good move from my point of view because moving to St Mary's where Felix Eastcott had done the first carotid endarterectomy in the world um, was a good place to start my future career as a pure vascular surgeon because once I moved to London, I stopped doing general surgery on the advice of Hugh Dudley. Hugh Dudley said to me, you need to concentrate on vascular surgery. Okay. Um, I was reluctant, but it was the right... It was the right so at that time, you wouldn't have had very many female role models. You wouldn't have had very many female colleagues. No. How, how did you get on? How did you, how did you manage? Well, there were a couple of women, and I'm going to mention both of them. One was Phyllis George, who was at the Royal Free, and one was Margaret Gilchick, who was also in the Mary circuit of, of hospitals. And both of them were very happy to give me a bit of advice, you know, usually in the ladies' cloakroom, um, <laughs> prior to giving a talk, perhaps, um, just to help me to get through that next step in my career. So... And Phyllis George was the person who suggested I applied for the council of the college and said, but don't say anything. Don't tell anybody I suggested it. Just do it, you know. So, so I did and, and amazingly got on to the council of the College of Surgeons. So that was all very good indeed. And became vice president? Eventually vice president, yes. I rose to Probably the, the first, were you the first? No, she, Phyllis George had been she vice was president. The first, I was, was the she? second, okay. yes, I was the second. But, but breaking barriers all the way along, that yes, being yes. The, the first female professor. Well, that came on the way. I mean, that came later, um, becoming asked to take on... I, I mean, I was on the selection committee for the chair of surgery at St Mary's. That's how it arose. Um, and it was at the time when St Mary's was going to be the first into Imperial College. Where the, yeah. Imperial College was going to become medical as well as science and technology then we were going to be the first to move in. And it was clearly going to be a time when somebody who'd got a little bit more experience of committees and negotiations and such like needed to be in the various chairs. And the first chair that came up for grabs was the chair of surgery. And the two shortlisted candidates were young and inexperienced, perfectly okay, but you hadn't got any of that background of, of committees and negotiations. And they, neither of them was deemed appointable. And uh, I went back to my office at the end of a rather long and gloomy afternoon when we hadn't made an appointment. And two hours later, the dean rang up and said, we'd like to, you to take on the job. And I just laughed at him. I think ridiculous. I don't want to be a professor of surgery. I mean, in retrospect, I can now see that it was important for a woman to become a professor of surgery. I had no idea that I would be the first. Not a clue. Um, but, of course, when I think about it, it should have been obvious. Um, so, very reluctantly, I did take that on um, and, and, and ran the department. I mean, the reason I was not keen was that it involves so much more than just being a surgeon and looking after patients and students. I mean, there's so much more to it, as, as you well know. 
particularly the, the, the running of the finances, which I, I found very difficult. Yeah, I don't like... I don't like running money things, but you've got to do it, and you've got to do no it very choice. carefully. Yeah, indeed, otherwise you're out on a <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yes, yes. It's not my comfort zone yeah. either. Yeah. So you've talked about, or you've reflected on a really positive uh, career path that's if you've glided through, and it's all been absolutely fantastic. And I and I hear people saying, well, it's all right for you. But there must have been some bumps in the road. But, you know, there were remarkably few, in all honesty. Um, I suppose I had some difficulties when I first met the professor of surgery in Liverpool when I was at the senior lecturer, at the lecturer stage, because he clearly hadn't ever worked with a woman before and, and found it quite difficult, I think, certainly very different, but we became good friends and he became a great supporter of mine in, in the long run and taught me so much about how to conduct research and how to get it published and how to get noticed in the world of surgery. So that was absolutely fine. One little episode when I moved to London, which would interest everybody, I think, is the fact that they had a dreadful thing called the trial by Sherry the night before the interviews. And you had to wander around with a full glass of sherry in your hand and talk to about 30 different consultants who might be interested in who got the appointment the next day. Um, and as I've said to my children, nobody can fill a full glass, so you have to have the glass full. You don't drink it, you just hold it in your hand. And I then went home from that, and I got a phone call about an hour later when I was at home saying, you should withdraw, you're not going to get the job. It would look very bad on your CV if you apply for this job and you don't get it. After all, you're a senior consultant already, but you're not going to get it. You should withdraw. And I said, thank you so much for the advice. I'll sleep on it. Of course, I had no intention of withdrawing, none whatsoever. Um, and I got the job. But, you know, it was, it, well, that was the most shocking thing of all, that somebody would feel that they could actually interfere in the process, which is clearly what they were doing. They were trying to stop me from being there. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you, you think that sometimes people might think these things, but then mm. when they feel empowered to act, yeah. it makes it very shocking. Very so shocking. if I could digress for a little bit, we're talking to each other now the day after the report on, on sexual harassment yes. Yes. and sexual misconduct yes. in, in surgery. Did you come across any of that? Happily not. Happily not at all. Never, ever. Um, and I don't understand why some people are subjected to it at all. I mean, it, it is totally uh, wrong and should never happen. I, I simply can't understand it. And I've, I've felt for some time that we need to address the question of, of behaviour in, in surgeons. That's the only group I can speak about. I'm sure it happens in other groups in society yeah, too. But, sure it does. Uh, certainly surgeons have always had um, a different attitude, a sort of, somebody, people have regarded it as a sort of godlike approach to, to their work, um, which is, is not required. It is a perfectly ordinary, good job of work. What you need is a good skill, a good approach to your patients, patience at the heart of all you, you do and it does not need anything that is difficult or demanding 
or upsetting for the people you work with. And it really does need to be ruled out of our lives. It's, it's horrendous that it's still there. And I sat on that discrimination working party at the college. With Helena with Kennedy. Helena, yeah. Yes, and she was wonderful. She was a fantastic chair of that event. And I went there thinking that this was a thing of the past, that behaviour of this kind has gone. And, and I had to listen to people giving evidence during those three months of that working party that really astonished me because I thought it should be and was a thing of the past. And it's clearly not. And clearly this report that's come out is saying that there is still a problem and it simply has somehow to be tackled and got rid of it. It, it has no place in society, let alone mm. in surgery. Mm. Absolutely not. I, I think where uh, we... we will tolerate less bad behaviour these days as well in the Maybe that's what it is. In the yeah, past. Maybe that is a change of approach that, you know, we kind of accept, as happened in other spheres of life, the, the film sector and so forth, that there was something, some things had to happen in order to make progress. That certainly is not the case, and it's certainly not the case in surgery. Mm. Nothing like that needs to be involved in any way. No. Can I, can I change tack a little bit yeah. and ask a little bit about uh, about you? Yeah. Because you've obviously had an incredibly fulfilling and busy life. So where does family fit in? And lots of the women that are aspiring to have careers like yours struggle a bit to yeah. to find their place when it comes to having uh, a partner, having children, having family life. Yeah. Have you have you managed with all of that? Well, I had no children of my own, and when I married Jack, he had three. So I acquired three stepchildren. One of them was 11, the other two were teenagers. Wow. It was challenging. I can imagine. But lovely at the same time. But I decided that for my first two years moving south, I wouldn't work full time. So I took a six session to start off with. So I had some spare time, A, to adjust to the move, and B, most importantly of all, to get to know the children, because I, I realised that it, it was something that needed to be established right at the very beginning, or it would never happen. I needed to get that relationship with them, and that takes time and, and a lot of energy. Um, and th those children are like my children. I love them dearly, and I now have six grandchildren who, you know, I'm, I'm granny, and that's it, really. Um, so that has been wonderful, but I, it also made me realise what a huge commitment children are and what a huge responsibility they are. And I really worry about the cost of childcare now for the, for the younger generation coming through and the availability of it. It's not easily available for the young to find childcare. Fortunately, my, when I acquired my three, they were beyond the need for having childcare. You know, they were old enough to, to cope. But if you've got babies, it must be extremely difficult if you want to go back to work and find proper care to look after them. So it was really educational for me to discover that, but also a very happy ending to my, uh, to my, my career. Very nice. So do you do grandparent duties these days? I do. I mean, I'm one of these people who loves them when they get to the point that you can have a conversation with them. I like them better <laughs> at that stage. So teenagers are fine. I'm very happy with them. So. Yeah. Yes, I do. I spend a lot of time with them. Well, well, I think we all get roped in because childcare is so difficult. Yes, indeed. Um, so indeed. difficult yes. to manage. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, we're coming to the to the end of, of our time. Yeah. So can I just ask you to think back over your career and, and think what advice you might give to aspiring women who want to go through medicine and either be surgeons or become leaders or, or whatever. What, what would you say to inspire them and help them along their way? I think one of the things that matters most to me is that you are not just a surgeon, you are a human being as well, and you have a family, and you have interests which you maintain. So for me, crucial to the enjoyment of my life has been the maintenance of those two other things, the family and music. And music dominates my retirement in a big way. It really does. It's, it's, it's very important to me. But I maintained it to a degree all the way through. It's very easy to drop your interests when you're flat out being a surgeon. But you'll be grateful if you are a trainee surgeon eventually that you've maintained it and you have those skills that are still with you when you reach the, the, the retirement age. And I think the other word that I've used many times with, with juniors, junior doctors in their training grades, is focus. Because it, it's one thing I never really had. I never was very good at focusing. But the really successful people are able to focus and focus in on a topic or a subject almost to the exclusion of everything else and get to, to, to progress that topic to, to, to the end point, to the, to, to the successful point at the end of it in your researches or your studies or whatever it happens to be. Or perhaps in playing the cello, because I know from reliable sources yes. that you are <laughs> an aspiring and probably very good cellist. I'm not a very good cellist, I'm a much better pianist. But <laughs> well, Avril, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget there are many other interviews in season one.